0: Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today Daniel Rabb from the Daniel W. Rabb Law Firm in Miami, Florida. Dan has been practicing law in South Florida for over 20 years. He is a member of the Maritime Law Association of the United States and an adjunct professor of insurance law and policy at the University of Miami School of Law. He has also authored the insurance-related book, Transportation Terms and Conditions. We thank you for joining us this morning, Dan.
1: My pleasure.
0: A recent decision by the United States District Court in Florida impacted the owner of an airboat on Florida water. I'm turning it over to Brendan Noonan today for our first question. Dan, can you briefly summarize this case and comment on its importance?
1: Sure. I think that this is a case that would be of great interest to your listeners because it's a case dealing with an admiralty concept entitled the limitation of liability, which goes back to even before the time of the Titanic where that was raised as an issue. The case that we're discussing today in the matter of the complaint of Everglades Island Boat Tours LLC as owner of a 21-foot airboat was a case involving injuries to a passenger on an airboat out in the Everglades. And what happened was, and this is something that I really think that insurers need to be aware of, is that the owner of the vessel filed what's called a limitation of liability and exoneration in order to try to limit the damages to the value of the boat, In this case, we're dealing with an airboat, which certainly did not have a value anywhere near what the injuries were that were allegedly, as we say from the insurance end, allegedly suffered by the plaintiff or the claimant in the case. So what happened was this case was filed to try to limit damages to the value of the boat. So it's a really important concept that I think that insurers and others in a defense posture who are dealing with admiralty issues ought to be aware of.
0: Can you define the relevance of the term navigable waters?
1: Yes, I'm glad you asked that question because that's one of the other important areas that came up in this case. In order to have admiralty jurisdiction, you have to have an incident that happened on what's called a navigable waterway. A navigable waterway refers to any body of water that ultimately feeds into an ocean or the Gulf of Mexico, which I guess that ultimately feeds into the Atlantic Ocean. So before any of these admiralty concepts come into play, you have to prove that the incident happened on a navigable waterway and that was one of the issues that was litigated here because it happened in the Everglades and what the petitioner did that is the party that was trying to limit and or eliminate damages was trying to link where this happened that it was actually a through waterway i guess to try to explain this better is If, let's say, uh, you have an incident that happens on a lake and it's nothing but a lake, there's no connecting waterway, there would be no admiralty jurisdiction and you could not assert the limitation of liability. But if, let's say, you have a lake or a waterway that ultimately connects, almost sounds like six degrees from Kevin Bacon, if you have something that connects to another through waterway that ultimately winds up with an ocean or the gulf, then there is admiralty jurisdiction. So that, that's a question that I've been asked a lot by insurers is what is a navigable waterway? And what I like about this case is it nicely goes in and gives an explanation about that.
0: And Dan, what are the limitations of liabilities for a small craft?
1: It's the value of the boat. So in other words, if let's say the boat and I'll explain how it even comes into play. In this particular case, if you're dealing with a 21-foot airboat and you go out and you have a value put on it of five or $10,000, and if you prevail on your limitation of liability, even if, let's say, you have a very serious injury such as an amputation, a fracture, broken bones, the claimant will not be able to get more than the actual value of the boat. Where this comes into play is when the owner of the boat has assigned this to someone who is presumably capable and the owner isn't there. So what's kind of unique about this is even if the owner of the boat is negligent, you can still limit your damages to the value of the boat. If the owner is there and operating the boat and causes the incident, then this concept wouldn't necessarily come into play but it's a good thing for boat owners to know about. In this case, it was a local airboat captain who was hired by the owner, and therefore the owner wasn't there. So in this instance, if let's say the captain had a lot of experience and the owner assumed that the captain knew what he or she was doing, then you could go ahead and limit your damages to the value of the boat.
0: And how will this ruling impact insurers?
1: Okay, what it is is it's more precedent that helps to put insurers in a good position and it's something else that insurers really want to be aware of in order to be able to assert this. This will help insurers because it's a way for them to limit their liabilities through this action which can be filed in federal court. There's something that insurers do need to be aware of is if they find that there is a boating accident and they think that the limitation of liability could apply they have six months from the date of written notice in order to file such an action in federal court. So I I think that this is a good device for insurers to use, and they really need to be aware of it. Something else in this case, which I think is also significant, because occasionally I've seen some courts go a little bit in another direction. But in admiralty law, in this type of situation with a passenger and even in recreational boating accidents, there are cases which do not allow for a loss of consortium claim. So in this particular case, the spouse was not able to make a claim for losses suffered. So uh, that would be the other aspect of this case that I I think is significant and that I I certainly think insurers want to be aware of and their counsel need to be aware of, that even though that's not the main part of the case, I mean, anything that we can do to knock out and limit damages is something that certainly claims people and attorneys want to be aware of.
0: Dan, does this case also have any
1: national relevance? In terms of what I liked about it was as far as the loss of Consortium aspect. I thought that was interesting. And so I would say that the consortium has national relevance. The other part of the case, which I, I think would have some relevance and that I think that people from other jurisdictions would take a look at, is this particular waterway. And this is what part of what struck me as something that made this case unique was a waterway that doesn't always exist. Here in Florida, We have the rainy season, and the particular area where this happened at certain times is dry. And in this particular case, the court still found that this was a navigable waterway because it, in fact, was a waterway at the time of the incident, even though you could go in there at certain times of the season when it's not the wet season here in Florida, And find that it's dried up. So I would say that that's something, or that's an issue that I have not seen posed in other cases of this nature. And also with the loss of consortium, it looked like they were going in this direction. And I know, in terms of having argued this issue in court, there are some who try to argue that maybe you can still try to pursue the loss of consortium. I think that this case is correct that it certainly does not exist in this type of situation with a passenger, but I know from having gone to court, some of my opponents in the plaintiff's bar will try to drag up cases from other jurisdictions to try to argue about this. I just think it's a nice, very well-reasoned opinion that drives home the fact that, you know, even if you have a craft such as this, or even a this would shock you. Even a jet ski can be considered to be a watercraft for purposes of the limitation of liability. So I just think it's a nice reference point for insurers to take a look at. And part of what really made this unique, and I don't know that I've really seen this before, is what happens if it's sometimes a navigable waterway, but isn't in this case answer the question, well, if at the time it's a navigable waterway, then of course it is for purposes of the limitation of liability.
0: Dan, any chance here for an appeal?
1: Uh, I think that this would probably be a difficult case to appeal because it did look like, and one reason why I thought that this particular case would be of interest the people who subscribe to AM Best and in the insurance industry is that it's such a well-reasoned opinion. So on the consortium, I would say at least in the 11th Circuit, we we would have a good shot at being able to have that sustained here. And I think on the navigable waterway issue, I think that most likely that that would be sustained by an appellate court. It looks very well reasoned, and in terms of a reversal rate in the 11th Circuit, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world to get something like this reversed. And I would say that they would probably have to go further into the case at the end of the case to see if this was something that they would appeal. But given the fact that the court cited uh, jet skis as being watercraft, I would not think that this would be an easy case to appeal. And if there was a differing opinion on the consortium aspect, I feel that the court is correct. I don't know that that would be something that someone would want to make a major appeal issue over in this particular instance.
0: Well, it's a very interesting case, Dan. Thanks very much for speaking with us today.
1: Uh, my pleasure.
0: Uh, this was Daniel Rabb from the Daniel W. Rabb Law Firm in Miami, Florida. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan for joining us in the studio today and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directories. And if you have any suggestions for a future podcast on insurance-related matters, please email us at at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message.